Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. This week, we have a special edition of Legends of Media Research featuring Media Science SVP, Philip Lomax as our guest host. Welcome to season two of Legends of Media Research. I'm Philip Lomax, Senior Vice President of Business Development at Media Science. Normally these episodes are hosted by Dr. Dwayne Varan, CEO of Media Science, but we thought it would be a great opportunity to introduce you to our host. Dr. Varan has amazing industry stories in his own right. And throughout this season, he'll continue to interview some of the brightest and most impactful individuals in this industry. But we wanted to give you the chance to learn a little bit about Dwayne's story. Dr. Varand ranks among the top 10 in the world in the advertising field for academic publications. And he's the only industry researcher in the top 10. He's also probably the most innovative researcher in the TV advertising field. Pretty much every major innovation in the TV ad industry over the past decade was first tested by Dwayne and the media science team. Probably the leading pioneer in neuromarketing research, certainly in terms of being transparent and bringing accountability to the field. He's an amazing leader and mentor with truly inspiring approaches to research and management. And I could go on and on celebrating what an amazing leader he is, but you'll discover all of that in today's episode and learn a great deal about innovation neuromarketing, and so much more. So Dwayne, welcome to the episode. <laughs> it's a little bit weird being on the other side of the microphone, but, but thanks, uh, thanks, Philip. It's fun to be here. Absolutely. Dwayne, let's start out with, why did you create Legends of Media Research as a podcast series? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Philip. So um, the background to this is that uh, in my role at Media Science, um, I, I have an amazing bounty, um, and that is that I've had the opportunity to, to regularly get together with this network, you know, that we're calling these legends, you know, um, people like Dave Poltrack, people like Betsy, people like Colleen, Faye Rush, uh, people like Artie, um, and, you know, I would get together regularly, so for example, uh, Dave and I would have lunch uh, certainly once every couple of months at, at Michael's over there, and and, um, you know, we'd get together and, and in these lunches and in these breakfasts and meetings that I'd have, these legends would share their stories with me. And I loved their stories. And I'd always learned something in, in all of these stories. And, you know, this generation uh, of, of legends is kind of like transitioning. Um, you know, uh, it's not just that they're retiring. In many cases, the shape of the research insights community is changing and, and moving to uh, things like, you know, big data, which is bringing a new generation of researchers and new approaches to research to the fore. Um, but there's something valuable that's being lost in that transition. And that's the context. You know, these legends have such rich stories about the context of these media platforms um, and, and how they work and how they operate. And I really felt that, that, that those stories were being lost in that transition. So the background to Legends was that I really wanted to bring those stories to the market so that, that people had the same kind of benefit that I had in those one-on-one you know, -on -one lunches and breakfasts, that they would have the same kind of benefits around um, hearing that generation, this generation of Legends, share their stories, you know, with, with everybody. Um, so that was, that was the background to it. And I feel that you're educating the entire industry. I, as a listener, learn something new every single time uh, that I listen to or re-listen to any of the, uh, the series last season. Um, before we dive into some of your amazing achievements, Dwayne, I'd actually like to start out with your childhood. <laughs> From the beginning, know. huh? <laughs> When you were a child, you were truly persecuted growing up. That's true. Tell us That's about true. that. And, and about the impact you think that it had on your career. Um, yeah, it's not something I normally uh, talk about. You know, Philip, you and I are close. Uh, and so, you know, these stories a little bit better than most. But um, when I was nine, my family decided to move to Iran. Uh, and so I spent five years actually um, in Iran. And 
The background to my persecution is that my religious background is Baha'i. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, you know, the Baha'i faith is uh, a relatively young religion. It's only about 200 years old. The main belief system is that all religions are equal. All religions come from the same God. But um, the faith started in Iran before it kind of went global. And in Iran, Baha'is have always been persecuted. Um, of course, now, you know, very heavily persecuted, but even during the time of the Shah, there was, there was uh, kind of like persecution at the street level, if you will. And I would go to school and on the first day of the school year, every year, the teacher would say, okay, everybody who's not a Muslim, please stand up. And a few kids would stand up in class. And by the way, I was in a British school. It wasn't like I was even in a local school. I was actually in a British school, but we had of course, Persian teachers. And so this, this would still be that, that first, uh, first day of class. And they'd say, everybody who's not Muslim, stand up. And then a few of us would be standing and say, okay, all the uh, Christians uh, sit down because the, the Quran uh, mentions Christ. So it's okay, you're legit. So, so sit down. Uh, all the Jews, uh, you can sit down um, because the Quran mentions Moses. So you're okay, so you can sit down. I'd still be standing. And they'd say, son, what's your religion? And I'd say, teacher, I'm a Baha'i. And the teacher would turn to the class and they would say, now, Baha'i is not a religion. Now, class, be very careful. Do not get too close when you're standing. Don't get too close to Duane. He's a Baha'i. And Baha'is give off little microscopic worms. And if you get too close to him, those worms will eat you from inside out. And so, you know, some kids just ignored it, but other kids avoided me because I, I was untouchable because I was a Baha'i. And sometimes kids, lots of kids would insult me. Sometimes kids would beat me up. I mean, that kind of persecution was actively promoted by the teachers. Uh, and it's something that I grew up with. I've never harbored any resentment for it. You know, in, in some cases I had to defend myself. Uh, I remember one year, three teachers, came to class to debate me. And I was 10 at the time. Three teachers came to debate me about why my religion wasn't a valid religion and, and to get me to abandon my ways. And, and what that did for me more than anything, I think growing up, is it taught me to stand up for what I believed in. And that's, that certainly has shaped my career. You know, when I look at my career uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I've never allowed the odds, I've never allowed circumstances to define. I've always stood up for what I believe in and pursued what I believed to be right or where I believed, you know, there was the best path forward, um, irrespective of uh, circumstances. And I, I do think that a lot of that uh, came from that, that persecution that I experienced in those years. Of course, it's so much worse now. Um, you know, I've had relatives who've been executed by the regime for their belief because they refuse to recant their faith. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's been a hard experience for Baha'is, um, you know, ever since. But, but again, as a child, yes, I, I did experience it. And I do think that um, it strengthened, you know, my, my resolve and my character, ultimately. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Twain, for being willing to share, um, you know, such a personal story with our audience. People don't know this about you, but you once actually hosted your own TV show. What was that like? <laughs> Well, I started college when I was really young. I started college when I was 16. And one of, in my first semester, one of my classes was a TV production class and I loved it. I mean, it was tons of fun. And the teacher was instrumental in getting me an internship at a, at a local TV station. After one semester of doing the internship, I had experience and I managed to get a job as a film editor at another TV station. In those days, being a film editor, it was actually on film, like you actually cut you know, you cut up, most of it was pretty unglamorous. It was just making space for, for commercials and, and things like movies and stuff. But I wanted my own show. And I would go and I would beg everybody. I mean, you can imagine this little kid at the station who's out there constantly like whining and wanting his own TV show. And people would just humor <laughs> me and stuff. Um, but I knew that one day my opportunity would come. So what I began doing is I began cutting segments from my own show. And I began producing these segments and having them ready in the can. And one day, the host for our local talk show, so this is a local, local station, the host for the local, local talk show had an accident on their way into work. And this was a relatively new station. They had no contingency plan for what to do. And so there was pandemonium in the building. What do we do? And I said, I have a show ready to go. <laughs> they all looked at me and they were all surprised. They had no alternative. So they put me on air. My first moments were catastrophic. 
I, I started off, I said, hi, welcome to Accent. My name's Dwayne. And I froze like a deer in the headlights. I had no idea what my next line was or what I was supposed to say. I just stared at the camera. And I said, and we'll be right back right after these commercials. And nobody's <laughs> ready for the commercial break. <laughs> so it's really bad. They're struggling. And I'm just staring at the camera. <laughs> you know, I mean, it seemed like an attorney, but it was probably like 10 seconds. And then it was great. Like after the commercial break, it was polished. And I had worked on these segments. So everybody was really impressed. So they said, okay, well, you can sometimes, you're definitely going to be like the, the fill-in host when, when our host needs to go on vacation or something. But I said, look, I've got an idea for a show. And this is before MTV. And I said, people want to see music on television. Young people want to see music on television. So I'll produce a show, which is music on television. And they all laughed at me. Um, at the same time, I was a student senator. And, and one of my portfolios uh, was the division of the university that dealt with concerts on campus. So I had a path to talking to the managers of these acts. And so I would call people. Like I remember one of the first people I called was the manager of Lionel Richie. <laughs> he was really big at the time. And I talked to him and I'm like, hi, my name is Dwayne and I wanna do a show. He goes, how old are you kid? I'm, like, I'm 16. <laughs> and you have your own show? Yeah. So they thought it was really cute. Um, and so I began producing these shows and uh, every month, once a month, there would be this special, a special issue of Accent where we would, and I, I did shows with, uh, Frank Zappa and and uh, you know Lionel Richie and anyway I would do all these uh, all these shows and the best show that I did actually was with John Kay of Steppenwolf. This was an amazing episode. It was at the absolute bottom of his career. Uh, he was staying like at a one star hotel. I brought him into the studio and the interview was unbelievable. It was the tell all. He was at the bottom of you know his career and he just laid out all the dirt with details, with everybody's name. So-and-so did this, so-and-so. It was an incredible interview. And I thought, oh, I'm going to win a, a Pulitzer Prize for this. This is so good. Um, and then I took him back to the hotel and then the team told me, Dwayne, we forgot to push the record button. <laughs> oh my goodness. But anyway, I did, have, I did host a show for a while. And it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I mean, for me as a teenager, it was the best job in the world because they'd build me a in the middle of the mosh pit, they'd build me a little stage. And wow. so I could go stand up in the middle of the mosh pit. I could go on stage. I could go backstage. I'd meet with people backstage. I mean, for a teenager, it was just the most incredible uh, experience. And, and that, 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 that was a really fun little gig that I had. It didn't pay well, but it was tons of fun. It sounds like you were uh, dancing on the ceiling in this uh, opportunity. <laughs> um, that experience actually led you to actually work in the advertising industry. Why don't you share a little bit about that experience as well? Well, it's kind of funny because at, at around that time, I was also traveling. I learned to travel and I did it on a credit card. And very soon my credit card bill was un, unpayable. I mean, I mean, I was on minimum wage at, at the TV station. So I went to a hand owner and I said, I need a job that pays lots of money. And they said, look, there's this job here for a copy editor at this ad agency. Now, I didn't know what a copy editor was. I honestly thought that the copy editor, you know, that meant that there would be this room full of copy machines and there'd be this staff and that I would be the chief of the staff and I would get to supervise the, the photocopying at the company. And I thought that <laughs> sounded great. I mean, the pay was, was pretty incredible. So I thought, wow, that sounds good. They knew my show. That was a huge advantage. I walked in and they said, look, why don't you, here's, here's a, a brief. Why don't you show us what you do with it? And I came back and I got lucky. As it happened, the, the, the approach that I had was almost identical to what they did. So they said, you got the job. So I turned up on Monday. I thought it's my first day. I should probably turn up in a suit to make a good impression, but I'm sure I'll be in a lab coat, but you know, I'll just turn up in a suit. So I turned up and I, I was greeted by my secretary. I thought, wow. <laughs> I get a secretary. And then they, they, they walked me in and, and uh, they said, this is your office. I thought, wow, I get an office. And they said, would you like a tour? And I said, yes. And in the tour, we walk by this little room that has one small little photocopy machine in it. <laughs> and I'm looking at it thinking, whoa, <laughs> this seems like a lot of fuss for a guy who's gonna be running this one little machine. Um, and it was then that I got introduced to the person I was replacing. And I said, what, what do you do in this job? You know, tell me your day. And it was only then that I realized that I would be, um, you know, writing all the commercials for this agency and supervising the creative team. 
But, you know, it wasn't a job that I was good at. I was 18. I, creatively, I think I was fine, but I couldn't supervise staff. I mean, I was a kid and I'd go and, you know, uh, so eventually they found out what my age was and, and it was just untenable after that. I need this by five o'clock today. I mean, it was just a joke. <laughs> so I, I did that job for a while and I had to decide, did I want to finish my degree or did I want to start work? And I decided I wanted to go back and do my degree. So, so yeah, I left that, that job and, and I decided to pursue my, my time full-time with my education. Well, I think all of us are grateful that you took that. Uh, <laughs> um, let's, let's actually- Because the ads weren't about... that great. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've now come to a, a place where you're helping everyone make better advertising. But before we get to that, I, I, want, you, I want to actually talk a bit about your PhD research on the introduction of television in the Cook Islands, a fascinating study. One of my favorite uh, stories that, uh, that you shared with me when I first joined Media Science. Please tell us about that experience and how that impacted your career. Yeah, so um, I spent uh, a year sailing in the Pacific and I, I built a lot of friendships um, in that time. This was between my master's and my PhD degree. I took some time off and you know, I, I, I spent one year sailing the Pacific and another year traveling down the Amazon. And, um, and then when I came back, the beauty of it was I had this network of friends in the Pacific who told me about things. And, 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 and I discovered through that network that in the Cook Islands, television was going to get, they didn't have television when I traveled. And the, the government had decided that they were going to introduce television and they were going to phase it in island by island. As soon as I heard that, I thought, oh my God, this is the perfect study. Like I could go in, measure islands before they get television, then one will get it and the other won't. And then eventually both will. So I will have the perfect natural experiment on the introduction of television. And there had been a number of attempts to do this and they all had one problem or another, you know, that didn't really pull it off. So this was a very exciting and unique opportunity. And so that's what I did. I, I set up the perfect natural experiment with these two islands, um, both of which at baseline have no TV, then one gets it and then eventually both get it. And it was an amazing education for me on a lot of levels. One, it's really the reason why everything I do today is based on experimental design. I, I really you know, developed a passion for the power of experimental design in that study, the ability to tease out variables. It, it was a very unique study because of course, it's done at whole of population level. I mean, I'm studying entire populations and there are all kinds of effects that you can see at whole of population level that you couldn't see at the individual kind of like normal testing level. Like for example, one of the really interesting patterns I discovered was prior to my research, the assumption was always that people were attracted by the big city lights. And so that if people got TV, that migration patterns would be uh, impacted. So people would be far more likely to want to immigrate to a place like the United States if they were getting American television. What I discovered was exactly the opposite. The, the America that people imagine prior to getting television, because they see tourists coming on their island, tourists who are relatively wealthier and you know, who are nicer and all that, that's the reality they think of when they think of America pre-TV. Once they get television, what do they think America is? They think America is, you know, CSI. They think it's like violent and there's murder around every street and, you know, like, and so they actually become less likely to want to travel to America, not more likely. And what was beautiful about this was I was actually measuring real migration figures, how many people were migrating, coming in and out of the island, you know, and all that. So it was, it was just a fascinating, and a lot of that work dealt with the cultural impact of television. And out of that came a a whole theory, which is a subject for a, a different day, which is, you know, my, my model of cultural erosion, which talked about different kinds of effects that happen when, when television is introduced to a population. But, but the most important thing in terms of the lasting impact that that research had on my career was that passion and that, um, that, that, that appreciation for the power of experimental design, which really grew out of that research. There's one insight that I actually would love for you to uh, talk a bit more so on, uh, which is the impact of television on local cultures and their desire to, you know, have a deeper connection with their own individual culture. Sure, sure. So at the time, um, the dominant paradigm kind of like in this kind of uh, transcultural effect stuff was, um, you know, was a cultural imperialism model. And it's a poor fit when you look at 
at real data. Um, you know, the assumption is that if people watch more American television, they become more American. And the data just doesn't support that framework. So, so what I did in my research is I used the metaphor of soil erosion to talk about four different types of cultural effects that happen with the introduction of television. Um, abrasion, which is conflicting cultural values. Uh, and the assumption is that one starts to prevail over the other. That's kind of like the dominant assumption in the market around people's encounters with other cultures is that they become more American or like the other culture. And um, what I found in the research is that's actually very rare. And it's, it's, not the, it's not the predominant cultural impact that happens. It does happen, but it only happens with, the, with uh, very rare parts of you know, a cultural encounter. Um, more common is what we call deflation. And in soil erosion, deflation is that you've got really hard rock and you've got soft sand. And what's vulnerable is the soft sand, not the hard rock. And so where you see most of the effect is actually aspects of a culture that are not actively being reinforced. Um, so in some cultures, they're actively reinforcing their dress code, for example, and so that's not as vulnerable to the foreign influence. But if you're not actively reinforcing it, then people may start to dress more like, you know, like people in the culture they see on television. So that's deflation. Deposition is the third effect, and that is where a culture lacks certain um, strategies for dealing with the problems they encounter. So in my research, for example, there's a lot of uh, urban migration that happens. People go from outer islands, which are remote, to main islands, which are more urban. And in the course of doing that, they're encountering things which they're, they don't have solutions for. And so they're going to search for solutions. If it's not on their own cultural system, they will often find those solutions in the media. So they'll find people in shows, for example, grappling with similar problems and they'll turn to those strategies. So it's filling a void that they perceive in their own life. And then finally, the most interesting is saltation. And what saltation is, is it's like, if you think of a particle traveling in the air or a particle in the water traveling through, um, eventually the force of gravity will bring that down. And when it impacts on the, the ground, it uplifts some of the, the soil around it. And then that is then further transported onward. So it's this uh, awakening, if you will, of, of a in, in cultural terms, it's an awakening of local culture that happens through the power of the contrast with the foreign exposure. And so in my research, what I demonstrated is that there are many areas of local culture which became stronger as a result of the encounter with foreign television. Um, so that's also a big part of, of what happens. So all of those are happening simultaneously. There are parts of a culture which are being threatened. There are parts of it which are, are uh, they're adopting new practices. And there are parts which are actually awakening their own cultural identity. And what was great about the, the research was really kind of like finding evidence for all of those things kind of happening at the same time. Fascinating insights, Dwayne. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. And it's topical today. As all of us become more and more interconnected on a global basis, these types of insights I think are needed across the board. So your real career then started after your PhD. Your academic career was amazing. You won the Australian Prime Minister's Award for University Professor of the Year. You built an amazing research center generating millions of dollars in research grants. What was the secret to your academic success? <laughs> I had a fun academic career. Um, yes, absolutely. So, you know, the background to this is that when you become a professor, nobody ever teaches you how to teach a class. There's not a single unit. There's not even a single lecture that you get that says this is what you're, you know, this is how you teach, this is how you teach a class. <laughs> you know, it's all about your research and then you're kind of just thrown in the deep end. And, you know, I, I, I was a good teacher. It's not that I was bad. I mean, I was always a good teacher, but I was always searching for a guiding light to help me um, understand how to be, you know, better. And, and to, to have a cohesive thought about really what, you know, what my approach to teaching should be like. And, and I found it in a very unlikely source. Um, you know, it was, it was reading a statement of the Baha'i world community to a United Nations conference dealing with poverty. Um, and it was talking about social and economic development. And in that context, there was a single sentence that I read that was dealing with poverty again. And it was talking, it was defining development. And it defined development, social and economic development. It defined development 
in these words. It said, cultivating environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. And when I read that sentence, <laughs> that sentence leapt out of that statement because I found my creed in teaching in that one sentence, cultivating environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. And, and there's so much in that sentence that was empowering for me as a teacher. You know, one was the recognition that it, that, that it was not about what I could do as a teacher. It was about creating the environment, the culture in the classroom that was such that it empowered people, empowered the students to be able to achieve their fullest potential. So for example, one of the things that I did to create that culture is you always have a, a, a TA, a teaching assistant. And it's a big deal, you know, who that teaching assistant is for students, you know, it's a big deal. And usually it's a grad student, you know, it's a master's or a PhD, usually a PhD student who's that TA. One of the things I did that was very unconventional is I told the class that next semester's TA would come from that group. And it would be the person who did the most to help the other students. Just that one simple twist totally changes the dynamic of the classroom. Now everybody is bending over themselves to help each other. It was so cool to see. And the other thing that I did is I made it clear to them that I don't grade on a curve. I view grading on a curve as an evil of the education system. I said, you are not competing with each other, you're competing with yourselves. And my job is to do everything I can to help you succeed. And so we created that kind of culture. And you know what these students would go on to achieve was surreal, was absolutely unbelievable. Um, you know, it started, this, this philosophy started with a script writing class that I taught. And at the time, the writing standard was 20 pages for a semester, which was what was considered appropriate for a, a three-point credit. <clears throat> I took it over and I said, you're going to do 120 pages in the course of the semester. They didn't break a sweat. So the following year, in addition to 120 pages, the final 21 days, they had to write a full 120 page screenplay in the course of those 21 days. And what I discovered is that people could do that. I didn't know if it was really even possible. <laughs> it took support, but they all did it. And then of course, when I moved to Australia, I brought that same philosophy with me. And um, we started with uh, working with industry partners. We worked with a local ice cream store that had one store and aspired to having a franchise. The class took that on as a class project. Today, that store has franchises throughout Australia, throughout Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Indonesia. Um, the, the work the students did was phenomenal. And, and that continued to be the pattern. So the students went on to work with companies like Nike, like the BBC. And the deal was that the partner had to pay to fly these students. So for example, when the BBC, when we did our project with the BBC, the BBC flew my entire class of 16 to London for the opportunity to work with them. And so the work they did just got better and better every semester. Um, and and um, that's what led to the prize. And that was the beginnings of what led to the research center. These students then would go on and become honor students and I'd supervise their research and we would build these incredible research projects, which were way ahead of their time. I mean, even today, you know, some 20 years later, when I look back at the topics that those students did, it, was, it's, it's, it would still be as applicable to, to today's industry as it was back then. You know, we were asking questions around addressability. You know, we were asking questions ar around um, customization. Um, we were asking questions around um, mobile. I mean, these were all things that were happening way before they even existed in, in the real world, so to speak. And we built a, you know, we built a successful research center. Um, we discovered a, a great funding model for it, which was to get industry to pay and in return, see the results of the research that we did before it was published. And that led to building up the research center. Uh, it led to winning lots of grants. Um, eventually I had my own building on campus. I had my own dedicated staff, so I didn't have to rely on faculty from, from different schools. We could do the research that we needed to do without being reliant on somebody kind of like doing it as a hobby. So that's how we became, you know, at the time, you know, the preeminent research center in the media sphere, looking at um, advertising and new advertising solutions. An incredible academic career. Then Lots of fun. <laughs> one day, <laughs> one day, suddenly you transitioned to industry. How did that happen, Dwayne? 
<laughs> it's true. It was it was literally like four days uh, to be technically precise. But what 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 happened was, of course, I had built up this research center. We had our own flagship uh, center, our own our own building, and we were doing all this work for um, you know all this research, which was uh, being funded by industry. Um, again, for the looking rights. And um, some of those sponsors were uh, Disney affiliated companies like ABC and ESPN. And they, everybody loved it. Everybody was like, oh my God, this is the kind of research that we need in our day-to-day -day operation. Um, and so uh, Disney decided that they should build a lab that was like the lab I built using the kind of methods that I was using, you know, doing the kind of research that I was doing. And they literally couldn't find anybody that they thought could pull it off. So they looked for a year, in fact, they were looking at vendors in the market who could do the kind of research that we're doing. And, and they eventually reached the conclusion that there wasn't anybody today in the space at the time at the space that could do it. So they called me up one day out of the blue and they said, Dwayne, in four days, it's our upfront and we're going to announce a lab that is just like yours, doing research just like yours for our day-to-day -day business. And we've decided that you're the only one who can do it. So we need you to, you know, to come on board and, and lead this for us. And I said, look, um, I can't, I don't want to leave uh, academia. I don't want to leave Australia. I can't be your employee. It has to be independent research. The only way I could do it would be if it was an independent business. Um, but I don't have the money. I'm just a, a poor college professor. I couldn't, couldn't do that. So um, for four days, we negotiated. They, they said, look, uh, you know, we have four days to negotiate. I said, I don't even have a lawyer. They said, well, you better get a lawyer. So I had to find a lawyer and we negotiated. And um, I made a long list of demands um, and they only had one demand. They said, that's all fine. It can be your business. We'll fund it. We'll pay for it. We'll do everything you want. You can have your own building, your own lab, all of that. But there's one condition. You have to be exclusive to Disney commercially. You can do all your academic research, but commercially you have to be exclusive to Disney. And out of that was born the Disney Media and Advertising Lab. And so for the first five years as a company, Media Science was the Disney Lab and we were exclusive to Disney. And then after five years, we came out of our exclusivity window and we grew beyond. And eventually uh, in 2015, Media Science became too big for me to do both. So I had to decide, and of course, I decided to leave academia. So I officially retired from academic life and um, threw my lot fully in, into industry, so to speak. So yes, it all goes back to those four days uh, in 2008, uh, leading up to Mother's Day in 2008, before the upfront, um, when the good folks at Disney persuaded me to, uh, to step across and, and move fully into industry, I guess. Not many companies can say that they were incubated by Disney. <laughs> it was a great transition. It was a great, I, I was very lucky in that sense. It was a great transition. Incredible origin story for media science as a company. Now, media science uh, sits between academia and industry. And what we perform for the industry is what, what's commonly known as neuromarketing, right? And neuromarketing has been a big part of your career. Your career has been centered around neuromarketing. Tell us why. It's not intentional. It's not that I have any particular uh, commitment to any one method. The, the background is that really since the dawn of my professional research, what I've always been most interested in is human emotion and the relationship between emotion and media and advertising encounters. You know, you have to say that emotion is at the center of any media or advertising research. Like it's, it's just impossible to think of any question where you wouldn't really be intersecting with emotion in that, in the context of really trying to address your, your, your question. The problem that we have is that people lack access to their own emotional journeys. And so if you ask a person, whether in a focus group or in a survey, a question about that emotional journey, about their emotional encounter with the media content, the problem is that you're getting, I wouldn't say it's a fake response, but you're getting a rational response. You're getting the rational interpretation of what they think they must be experiencing, which is very far removed from what they're actually experiencing emotionally. And so, of course, this was always going to be a focus for my career methodologically. And so maybe about 20 years ago, I began working with psychologists uh, to bring a lot of the tools that were available to psychology into the media sphere. 
So, you know, that was galvanic skin response, uh, eye tracking, um, heart rate, uh, EEG, facial expression analysis. Those kinds of measures allow us to directly measure human emotion rather than be reliant on what people tell us. And so out of that came this passion for neuromarketing, not because I care about the methodology, but because I care about the research questions. And so I'm prepared to turn to a range of tools, whatever tools I can, to help me address the questions that I'm interested in. So that, that's kind of the background in terms of how, I mean, first me and my research center, and then of course, eventually media science, why, why neuromarketing has been so central, because you just really can't get at those questions any other way. These measures, accessing the nuance, this has been controversial in some ways. I know that you've made a big push uh, throughout your career, but also about a decade ago to bring transparency and accountability to the neuromarketing industry, leading in part to the ARF, the Advertising Research Foundation's Neurostandards Initiative. What motivated that for you, Dwayne? In my role as chief research officer at the Disney Media and Advertising Lab, um, you know, again, which was media science before, you know, when we were exclusive to Disney, in that role, I was hungry and eager to find suppliers in the market that could deliver a range of measures, you know, including, of course, the neuromarketing measures. So vendors would come to me all the time. And of course, vendors are going to others in the industry as well, but, you know, generally they don't have the background in the neuromarketing industry to, to be able to properly evaluate what they're being told. But I would have these neuromarketing vendors approach me and I was shocked by the snake oil they were selling. <laughs> to be blunt, <laughs> they would say and do things that was just remarkably, I mean, it was pop science. You know, just because you use a scientific tool doesn't make what you do science. And, and the, the bigger problem with it was that almost everybody was peddling something that was black box. So I would say, okay, well, you know, you're saying that this is engagement. How are you measuring for engagement? And it's, I can't tell you. It's, 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 a, it's black box. It's a proprietary. And, you know, uh, even under NDA, we can't tell you because you could reverse engineer, you know, and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And so... You know, you, it's very hard to sing the song of science on the one hand and then not be held accountable and not have it replicable and, you know, not be willing to open the door for transparency. And, and this was a real problem for the industry, I think, because I felt that this would bite the industry ultimately because people would have experience with snake oil and they might not know at the time, but eventually they would know. I mean, eventually they would see, wait a minute, these guys are telling us this is great, but the sales weren't that great. What happened? You know, so I really felt that this was a problem for the industry. And, and what made it even bigger was the fact that it was dealing with things that people didn't know anything about. And so it, it, it was a disadvantage. You know, it was um, an asymmetrical uh, knowledge kind of problem. So I, I gave a, a keynote at one of the ARF conferences and I called for you know, what became the Neurostandards Project. And then I approached the ARF and I said, look, I'm willing to help make this happen. And the ARF was very gracious and, and, and they allowed me to spearhead it. And we got horse to, to run the project. And, we, and, and the way that we did it was we got neuro vendors to, to do tests on the same eight ads and then submit their results for peer review. And if they wanted to be black box, they could do that, but they'd still have to submit it for peer review. And eventually I would publish an article many years later, which looked at that data and which demonstrates that there was no point in time when any two vendors agree on what's going on. So what we say is there is no common truth. So how you do the research is actually incredibly important and incredibly instrumental to what the results are. And if you're not willing to be transparent about that, then a, a, a client should not work with you. And that is my position today. If, if a vendor is in the market with black box technology, a client should not work with them because you have no idea what you're potentially uh, dealing with. So we felt it would be important to have that validated. And I think Neurostandards 1.0, as it came to be called, was truly landmark. And it was a really important study. A number of vendors fell out of the market. They, ran out of, they, they, they were out of business because of that study. It was really landmark. And I think for a while, it did a good job at improving the grade. Unfortunately, I think we're, we're back a little bit to the wild, wild west these days. 
And I think the same could be true also with um, machine learning and AI. I think there's a need for a similar kind of venture. Again, uh, neuromarketing and AI machine learning are both incredible tools, very powerful. There's a lot they can do, but they can also easily be misused. Now, none of that should detract from the potential and the opportunities such technologies represent. I mean, we did a study, for example, in collaboration with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for, for Mars, where we demonstrated that survey-based measures gave you about 54% accuracy in terms of correctly identifying in-market success, and that was boosted up to 78% with you know, neuromeasures. But I mean, that's when it's done properly. If you don't command the knowledge to know the difference, then you're at a disadvantage. And so that's the reason why industry initiatives, like the Neurostandards Initiative, are so important because they fill an important gap that individual companies can't easily do or easily fund on their own. I think despite all of your accomplishments, your greatest legacy is probably in the media and advertising innovation domain. As I said at the start of this episode, every major innovation in the TV advertising industry was first tested by you and your team. I mean, everything from video ads on mobile phones to picture-in-picture -picture ads, to limited interruption, to interactive video ads, to addressability, to social media ads, branded apps, brand integrations. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. How do you do it? How are you always a step ahead? What's the secret to your approach to innovation? Well, I don't know that there's so much a secret, but you know, some of the ingredients that come together for us, of course, first and foremost, we have an amazing group of clients, uh, clients with interesting questions, uh, interesting and exciting solutions, a hunger for innovation, uh, a commitment to truth, you know, and of course, as you build a reputation in an area, you attract more people, you know, looking to do research in that area. So as we've done this innovation research, it's attracted more innovation research. So you, you have a real positive iterative cycle that gets set in motion. And of course, you know, we invest heavily in our infrastructure, both equipment and people, you know, with software engineers and, and creative designers so that you can do the rapid prototyping. Uh, you know, we're always on the hunt for new methods. And in fact, we have a commitment to doing that rather than just kind of like taking a product off the shelf and trying to force fit the question to, to a product we already have. There's a commitment to R&D, so we're always doing experiments with new approaches and, and validating them. And as we find them to be effective and to work and to kind of like add to our toolbox, we're then able to apply them to other studies. I mean, we have a real culture that embraces innovation where we're fearless in tackling new ground. It's an exciting confluence of strengths that comes together in kind of like well positioning us for this kind of innovation research. I have to tell you, it's truly a great blessing because it makes our work so exciting and truly exhilarating. We all feel like we're part of a movement, not just part of a company. One of the current topics that we face today, um, which you've been studying for a while now, has been around media context effects. And you've done a lot of work in that space. What have you learned about how the media environments affect advertising? Well, it's a great, it's a, it, you're right. It is a really important topic. It's even more important today than I think it's ever been because the, 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 the media industry is bifurcating in terms of um, buying of, of media. It's bifurcating around kind of like um, programmatic buying, you know, which is just automated and, and, and premium buys. And if you say that something is premium, you know, you have to demonstrate why it's premium. And it's often premium because of the context, because of the environment that it's in. So there's a greater need for research now that demonstrates that premium proposition, which all comes down to, again, you know, researching context. We have done a lot of work over the years in many different kinds of genres. I think the most important mistake that industry makes is the industry is far too simplistic the way that it thinks of or frames context. Usually when we take context, we're thinking about one kind of effect, which is congruity. And so we're saying, you know, oh, it's a funny show. So therefore it would be really well suited for a funny ad. And that's true. Congruity is an effect. It's one of the ways that context works. It's one of the benefits that context delivers, but it also leads to erroneous thinking. Like then suddenly you think, oh, I shouldn't buy news because news is negative, and therefore, if I want a positive 
kind of like mood in my ad, now I have a problem because it's not gonna flow through. And that assumption is actually, we've demonstrated consistently that that assumption is actually mistaken. So what we have to understand is that context does not work one way, it works many ways. In fact, we've documented and demonstrated 10 different ways in which context works. So for example, sports works, but it doesn't work because it's, it's a congruity. It makes you excited, but it's not that you go into an ad that's an exciting ad necessarily. In fact, all ads benefit from being in sports. So, so how is that? What we've demonstrated is that that is what we call an excitation transfer effect. And what it is, is you go into the ad break in an excited mood and that excitement gets transferred to the brand. You perceive the brand in a more favorable light as a result of being excited. And so therefore, because you perceive the brand in that more favorable light, the ad is more effective and it delivers on a whole range of different kinds of effects. So that's the reason why sports work so well. News, which is very different, works with a cognitive activation effect. So the way that news is working is news is inherently very cognitively engaging. And so you are getting your brain basically, you know, warmed up and in gear as you're, you're, you're processing these stories. And then what happens is you go into the ad break, you have better pathways to your memory structures as a result of the activation of your cognitive resources. So your ads in the news environment will deliver superior memory effects because of that. So that's an example of why ads can work better in news contrary to the assumption that you know, they might be at a disadvantage because the content is often negative. We have consistently found that ads do better in news on average. So these are just examples. And there's a need for lots of research to better understand those types of contextual effects because um, there's, they're, they're very complex in terms of all the different types of effects that are at work at the same time. So as an advertiser or an agency, you need to find the right environments on the right platforms to feature your advertisements. But I'd love for you to speak a little bit about now the execution, the creative execution strategy of brands today, because we see brands, you know, doing, doing many different things to interact with audiences today. But I'd love for you to speak a little bit now um, about uh, the role of, you know, advertising at a brand level. If I were to say what I think the biggest sin is, which a brand is committing today, um, you know, we live in an age of incrementalism. And, and, and what I mean by that is people are deploying things and responding to things like clicks. And they're saying, oh, this, you know, let's, let's run two different things. And, oh, we see people responded more here. So let's run more of these. And, you know, what this means is that you're seeing lots of funny things, you know, when you're on on social media platforms and, you know, and, and all of this is being driven, but in all of this, what's being lost is strategy. What's being lost is branding. What's being lost is the, the larger objectives of creating the right memory structures uh, around a brand, you know, and, and this is hugely problematic because it's a long-term effect, not a short-term effect. And so brands are kind of like almost blind to the consequences of their actions. And, the, and, and a lot of it is about inconsistency. You know, you have a TV campaign that looks one way, you've got a Twitter campaign, which looks totally different, which is very different to what you're doing in Snap. You just have no consistency in who your brand is. And it's because you followed this trail of incrementalism, which is destructive in many ways to the positioning of the brand long-term. So I think that for brands, it's go back to basics. You know, for the positioning of the brand, there has to be a communication strategy and you have to have very clear objectives, communication objectives, and you have to have clear measures associated with each of those objectives so that you can align whether or not you're delivering against the strategy and consequently, whether your strategy is actually effective. So there's a lot of work to do. I think it's, it's easy to get distracted by the opportunities of the age and, and lose some of like the core fundamentals. And of course, attention will be critical to any ad execution. What has your research taught you about attention? Well, recently we did some seminal work, again, collaborating with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. This was a, a landmark project that we did for Google. And the challenge was to look at the academic literature, find every possible way, at least in the published literature around measuring for attention to see which measure is best suited for measuring ads. What we discovered in that research was that 
In fact, the industry is misguided when we think more attention is better. It's not that more attention is better, it's that attention requires a minimum threshold after which it's other variables that matter. So as an industry, we should not be talking about attention, we should be talking about inattention. And in fact, we should be thinking of attention as the absence of inattention. And the good news there is that there are lots of very reliable measures of inattention. And so we have something that we can really work with as a scalable measure. In fact, one of the things that was really surprising in the research was one of the best measures for inattention was heart rate, which was as good as EEG in terms of measuring for um, this kind of inattention and better than measuring for visual attention, which of course has a massive blind spot because it doesn't pick up moments when people are paying attention, just not looking at screen, which is surprisingly frequent. It's an exciting agenda, particularly as we're looking at classifying and, and dissecting all these different dimensions of attention. Well, Duane, we've talked about platforms, we've talked about media context, such as programming, and we've also talked about advertising, right? Hopefully, we've given some ingredients for our listeners to go out and create an amazing recipe in which their ingredients are speaking to each other in the pot, let's say. Let's pivot now to one of my personal favorite topics, which is the topic of leadership. How do you approach your role as CEO at Media Science? And how would you define your approach to leadership? Mm, that's, that's a great question, Philip. Um, you know, in the same way that I was never taught to be a teacher, I was also never taught to be a manager. I mean, I, I started my research center and nobody ever even gave me a single lecture or a seminar on how to, to manage my center. And so in the same way, I began searching for a philosophy for an approach. And of course, I started with the same philosophy that I had for effective teaching. So in the same way that I, I talked about that previously as being good teaching, now it became good management is about cultivating environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. In other words, my job as a manager was to create the right environment in the workplace to empower people to achieve their fullest potential. And I think that it had some missing elements and I was in desperate search for those elements, you know, dealing with things like, what do you do when you have problems, you know, with HR and all that kind of stuff. So I began searching the management literature as, as an academic would. And the management literature is incredibly disappointing. I, I'm shocked, actually, when you take a bird's eye view of the management literature. Um, my main criticism would be that the management literature is entirely situational. It's about somebody having an approach to management which works under a very specific set of circumstances. What I could not find was good books based on empirical evidence. Don't just give me your opinion. Don't just tell me stories. Show me data that tells me that this approach to management is effective. And, and a good example of that might be a book called Good to Great. It's okay, but it's dealing with companies at the organization level, not with managers at the kind of like manager level. And I didn't like that about the book. I didn't like the fact that it was kind of like at aggregate level. So I eventually found a book, which I loved, and I highly recommend this book. This book is part of the core reading material for management at Media Science. And the book is called First Break All the Rules. It's by researchers at the Gallup organization. It's based on survey data on a million employees, focused interviews with 60,000 of their managers with access to their performance files and records. Uh, an amazing body of research. The mistake that the authors make is they pick the wrong title for this book. Because if you are attracted by that title, First Break All the Rules, you're gonna be incredibly disappointed by the book. Because this is not about a, a book about breaking rules. <laughs> and likewise, if, you know, if you're the type of person who's really attracted by kind of like systematic, David-driven research on what management should be, you're not gonna be attracted by that title. So they really got the title wrong. But it's a great book. And it's the only book that I could find that I think was truly based on good empirical data. And it articulates 12 key principles. 
And those principles have also been guiding lights for us at Media Science. So for example, one of those which fits very well with the earlier philosophy that I espouse is that you should have a best friend at work. And so we do things as a company to make sure that we have the kind of environment where people are friends with one another. You know, we have a very collaborative culture where that's, uh, that's a big part of what we do. And, and a lot of it also deals with hiring the right people. And that's a big part of what we do. As a company, we hire not only people who are skilled and qualified, but we hire what we call good people. And these are people that you would love to have on your team, that you love collaborating with, you love working with. And it's a big part of what we do as a culture, as an organization, is put as much attention to the person as we put to the objective. And a lot of it is about um, making sure that you hire the right people for the tasks that you need, rather than just going against some generic criteria around, you know, people with good grades or something. And all of this has translated into what is an absolutely amazing team. I mean, the team at Media Science is really second to none in the industry. You know, we're all really great friends. There's an energy and a buzz. There's a an intellectual curiosity. There's a drive for innovation. I mean, it is just phenomenal. It's a great team. And and there are so many people who've been instrumental in pulling this off. I mean, you know, there's yourself, Philip. There's, you know, Dr. Amy Rask, who really runs our operations. Uh, Alyssa Moses, who heads our qual division. Daniel Balgren, Anthony Almond, Eric Johnson. I mean, it goes on and on across all aspects of our business. We're just, they're world-class researchers, world-class software engineers, world-class project managers. I mean, just across the board. We looked for a word that captured our philosophy, uh, our creed, and our approach in one word. And we tried a lot of things, you know, as we did that, like coaching for success, you know, et cetera. And we discovered that word eventually. And the word is nurture. We view our job in management as nurturing talent within our organization. And I think that's a big part of the kind of company that we've been. And we don't do it perfectly all the time. We don't do it well at all levels. But certainly I think that's what we strive towards is to be nurturing in empowering people to achieve their fullest potential. And because so much of our focus is around innovation, that's a very good fit to our, our culture as well. Because if you're about innovation, you have to be about empowering your team to achieve their fullest potential. So that's worked well. Now for me as CEO of the company, there's one more ingredient which is really critical. And that's the ability to bring vision to fruition, to translate a vision into reality. So I see my primary job as CEO being about articulating a vision and figuring out how to help the company get to that vision. And that's a large part of what we do. What I'm really proud of as a company in our culture is we tackle the impossible every day. We're always looking at something which when we look at it, when we start the project looks absolutely impossible. And yet we've never faced a challenge that we haven't been able to deliver to. And that's a part of the culture. We don't have the kind of culture where our staff look at something and think, can we do that? That's never in our DNA. We look at a problem, we don't know how we're gonna get there, but we know we will get there. We will conquer whatever it is that we're, we're, we're tackling. And it's exciting in a way, because when we face big challenges, we're excited because we know that we're gonna grow as a company. So we're very excited. We, 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 we truly welcome the unknown. It's, it's an exciting part of, of, of how we work. So I think that's what we've been able to achieve in our, our particular approach, if you will, to management. I think that's an amazing segue, uh, you know, tackling the unknown towards product innovation. What are some of the unique product innovations that media science brings to the table? What differentiates media science within this industry? Well, I think it's three things. Um, first, uh, you know, it's just the sheer experience that media science has, particularly around questions of, of innovation. Um, you know, second, it's the infrastructure. I think even our competitors would acknowledge that, you know, media science has the best audience research labs in the world. Um, that's a heavy investment that we've made. We we make sure that we have the tools that we need to be able to execute well, and we have the, the human infrastructure, you know, the software engineers, the creative teams um, to support that kind of research. And finally, I think it's the, the credibility we command. Um, you know, media science is, uh, is a hybrid, kind of like between an academic and industry. You know, we're somewhat unique in the extent to which we subject a lot of our research to the scrutiny of peer review. And we publish, in fact, if uh, media science were a university, 
it would rank 25th in the world in terms of its publication outputs and the advertising discipline. I mean, that's remarkable, you know, beating a lot of elite universities in that process. And that means that clients can be confident that the findings are well validated, that they're well grounded, that they're based on very sound methodologies. And the market, I think, uh, appreciates and, and understands that. So I think those are the kinds of things that differentiate us in terms of how that's translated into uh, products, if you will, that we offer the market. I mean, the most important product I think we offer is the custom research, the ability to listen to a client, understand their challenges, understand their questions, their problems, and search in the world to find the best in class approaches to addressing those. I think that's where our greatest reputation has been built. But we also have a range of very specific products, like, for example, we have StreamPulse, which is our own private OTT channel, like our own Netflix channel, if you will. What's so exciting about that is that allows us to test questions in home. We have variants of that. We have, for example, an in-home neurometric panel where we collect galvanic skin response and heart rate data in home on our StreamPulse channel. We have an in-home dial product that, that allows us to do dial testing at home. We have our own brand integration research tool, which we call Brand Pulse. Effectively, what we do is we take the integration as it airs and we create a control version where we digitally remove the integration. So for example, if a truck pulls up and it has the name of a company on the side of the truck, we remove the branding and we retest the episode now without the integration. And in this way, we're able to isolate the integration and measure for its impact, both in the program and in an adjoining ad. And of course, we have uh, social media ad insertion and content insertion products, so we can insert content in people's own feeds, whether that's in um, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, TikTok, any of the major social media channels. And then of course, we now have our Qual product, which is Hark Connect. Hark Connect is a tool that's available to anybody in the market, and it's uh, for focus groups and interviews and qual research. It's the most advanced platform of its kind. Not only does it have really powerful real-time tools for things like automatic translation and transcription, sentiment analysis, automated tagging, etc., but it's also got really incredible post-session editing tools to help make the process of extracting insights so much faster than are possible with existing tools. And of course, there's a whole array of other tools. I mean, this just gives you a, a sample of the kinds of tools that we use at Media Science. So as we continue on, Dwayne, what is next for media science? Well, you know, in the immediate future, it's really more uh, international and global expansion. You know, every major U.S. TV network is or has been a client. Um, same with all the, the dominant social media platforms, you know, the, a, a lot of the global brands. We've done really well in terms of growing in the United States. Uh, we have labs now in Chicago, Austin, and New York. But we recently just opened an office in Australia, and that's the start, if you will, of our global expansion. I mean, we've always done projects in other countries, but this is now kind of like operating a, a proper lab and, and an ongoing continuous operation. And this year we'll be opening a lab in London. So that's a really exciting step for us at, at Media Science. And at the same time on our StreamPulse at home network, this year, we will also be expanding our U.S. panel of 500 homes to a global panel. Um, and we're estimating that that global panel will ultimately be about 3,000 households. So we will start to deploy in Canada and Australia and the U.K. and globally as, as client demand um, kind of grows. So we'll be going through a lot of that kind of global expansion. So that's an exciting, that's one exciting thing in terms of where media science is going, really moving to a lot more global expansion. And then, of course, uh, in all of the domains that I talked about, there's an amazing array of innovation coming. So I talked about the Heart Qualitative platform. You know, already that's the most advanced uh, qual platform in the world, but that's going to get a lot more advanced this year because we are now integrating um, neurometrics into that at-home qual uh, platform that we're using, and that's going to be a really big chapter. And there's also some really exciting new editing tools that we're bringing in. So, you know, it's just a lot of innovation around all of the things that we do as a company. So it's, it's an exciting time. Of course, we've come through the pandemic. I'm really proud of the way that media science responded to the pandemic at a time when most of our competitors withdrew 
And really, some people left the industry altogether. Many just scaled back their operations drastically. We doubled down and we made big investments. Um, and I think that we are seeing the fruits of that in terms of certainly today, I think we are a stronger organization than we were pre-pandemic. So it has worked for us, even though it was a very painful experience and it was very tough on the team. I think we did an amazing job in, in, in kind of plowing through and getting through it. Now, I know you always ask this of your guests on Legends of Media Research, so it's only fair that I ask you, what advice do you have for young researchers in the field? Well, that's a great question. The thing is that the industry used to be a very different industry. It used to be an industry where tomorrow looked like yesterday. And if tomorrow looks like yesterday, the name of the game is efficiency. Just get better and better at what you do today because tomorrow will look like today. And so if you're better at what you do today, then that's gonna be good. So I think that's, what, that's where the need was. I think going into the future increasingly, tomorrow does not look like yesterday and it doesn't look like today. So if you're just getting better at what you do today, that's not going to, that's not going to cut it. So I think that this generation of researchers needs to have an appetite for change, needs to have an appetite for innovation. You, you have to be hungry to look and asking yourself how you can do whatever it is you do better, how you can move into new arenas. You know, so I would sum it up really with that idea of that hunger for innovation. You know, if the industry is about change, research will play a critical role in navigating through that new landscape. And so that's going to happen to the extent that people embrace that kind of innovation. So I would say that's, uh, that's the single skill that becomes most valuable with uh, researchers going forward. Well, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Varan, for being my guest on today's episode of Legends of Media Research. On today's oh, episode. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Philip, for, for, for the interview. It was a lot of fun. It was a great journey. Absolutely. On today's episode, we, we covered several topics. We talked about innovation, context effects, neuromeasures, leadership, and a host of other topics. And I would also like to thank you, our audience, for listening to today's episode of Legends of Media Research. What a great way to start season two. And now you've learned a lot more about our host, Dr. Dwayne Varan, who will be interviewing other legends of media research this season and learning how they impacted the media and advertising industry. I'm Philip Lomax, Senior Vice President of Business Development at Media Science. Join us again next time for Legends of Media Research.